tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hello, Happy Lent. Is that, can we say that? I wouldn't want to say Grim Lent, but uh, where I am, it's pretty grim. Um, <laughs> just, a, just a note, I, oh goodness. It's the most wonderful time. It certainly is. With the kids jingle belling. Well, I don't know about the kids jingle belling, but everyone fasting, be of good cheer. All right. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Holy, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go to the big book on the coffee table. One of my younger parishioners once said, yeah, I enjoy your show, especially when you mess up the prayers. <sighs> oh, well, you get old, you forget stuff. All right, moving along here. Let us go to the gospel first. And I think we'll probably just end up there. Mark the sixth chapter, the first to the sixth verse, and then it jumps to the 16th and 18th. And you know what I do? Um... I, I like to look at the whole chapter when that happens. Take care not to perform righteous deeds. That's the first verse, um, so that people can see them. Well, you know, that's a real important thing. And I'm going to save some of that for the word of the day. But, uh, um, you know, that, that um, I think we can almost take this too far. If Jesus can be spoken of this way, his secret of success— was that he played to an audience of one. He really didn't care what people thought of him one way or the other. His, his goal was to please the Father. And sometimes I have known people who have this kind of false humility that they... I remember a, a, an old Pentecostal preacher who, uh, who really believed in grace. And he said that when people came up to him and said, Reverend, that was a wonderful sermon, he would say, yeah, it was, wasn't it? I really don't know where that one came from. In other words, he he credited the Holy Spirit with anything good that he did. He wasn't um, kind of arrogant about his humility. Um, uh, and I think that we can, in a sense, um, take this verse. It says, take care not to perform righteous deeds in order that people may see them. Perform righteous deeds. Do the things that God would do, the generosity and the kindness and the mercy. 
but don't do them so that other people can see them. In other words, if other people see them and glorify your Heavenly Father, this is good. But uh, um, your purpose is not to be seen. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the Word of the Day. Okay, moving on here. <clears throat> when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, though you, <laughs> in certain circumstances, you can let the IRS know about it, but that's just uh, moving along here. All right, your father who sees in secret will repay you. That's kind of a, I remember as a child being intimidated by the idea that God is always watching you. And someone, I heard someone say, of course God is always watching you. He can't take his eyes off you. He loves you so much. So, you know, understand that we have the same audience that Jesus had, the Heavenly Father. Okay, let's move along here. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on street corners. You know, you do what you do whether people are watching or not. You know, I've heard it said that your religion is what you do when no one is watching. It's also what you do when people are watching. It isn't a matter of, oh, I can't pray now because people might see me praying. No, you just understand the only person who really counts in evaluating you is your Heavenly Father. And, of course, our Lord and the Holy Spirit. If you please God, if your intention is to please God, then whether you pray privately or publicly, it, it doesn't matter. We have this, this kind of exaggerated humility that, uh, that I think can be detrimental. We live in an age in which we need to be publicly Christian. And believe me, most people are not going to praise you for it. They're not going to be impressed. In fact, is they are going to try and hurt you because, well, you make them nervous. Uh, it's fascinating. We used to be able to see Catholics in kind of public. <laughs> they would pray and not eat meat on Friday, and they would do that in a restaurant. Do you pray in a restaurant? Well, the Bible says you shouldn't pray and so that people will see you. No, pray. And if people see you, maybe they'll realize you're Christian, and they may love you for it. More likely in our times, they will not love you for it. So don't be afraid to pray publicly just so you're not praying publicly in order to impress someone. Okay, when you fast. Now this, oh, I'll just go off the topic on this. Why not? When you fast. It doesn't say if you fast. It say it says when you fast. <clears throat> Why fasting? Well, I really learned this from an exorcist friend of mine. And... Um, you know, exorcism, again, I, I need to say I am not and never have been an exorcist, though I have assisted at exorcisms. And um, you see an exorcism, and um, it's pretty hard not to deny that supernatural things happen. It occurred to me that in witnessing exorcisms, the, the most important prayers, or the most effective prayers, I don't know about most important, but the prayers that seemed to me to be most effective were the Creed and the Hail Mary. The Hail Mary I've talked a lot about. It's a Bible verse that makes the devil crazy because he reminds him that God loves even human flesh. He loves the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. And it's using the Bible, a verse from the Bible, to, to, to say that. It isn't, it isn't magic. It is, a, it is a Bible verse that is effective in spiritual warfare, the rosary, the Hail Mary, but the creed? Well, think about the creed. I believe in, again, I'm always telling you the smallest words are the most important in the, in the, 
in the uh, in in the text of scripture. I remember a student who said he never translated a word under three letters. He didn't do very well in Latin, but. Uh, in is a very important word here. If I say, I believe that you exist, you'll say, Father, I'm glad you're taking your medication. If I say, I believe in you, that's different. It's strengthening. I trust in you. The goal of the exorcist is to get a person to express his free will, saying, I'm going to trust in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because the devil, it's in C.S. Lewis, uh, he talks about... Uh, uh, the devil's purpose is to to um, uh, overpower the person. The, the devil looks at us as, as kind of cattle, uh, food prepared for the table, the stronger will devouring the weaker. And I think that C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters was riffing off the verse in Scripture, the devil goes about like a lion, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil wants to devour our freedom. And to make us a slave. The devil, as C.S. Lewis says, looks at us as, as food. That said, when the devil has overpowered a person's will, the job of the exorcist, in part, is to kind of tie down the devil with prayer and to get the sufferer to express his free will to trust in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So freedom is the essential in, I think, if I'm wrong, I'll have to talk to more exorcists, but freedom is an essential component of the, of the moral life and of an exorcism. Freedom is an absolute uh, necessity for love. If I have to love you, I can't love you. How often do I tell the story of the starlet who's 22-ish and has had some work done and who's being interviewed for the puff piece on the television uh, uh, who says, uh, oh, I'd love him if he was the poorest man in the world. This 90-year-old billionaire is drooling away over there. And when he dies shortly of overenthusiasm, uh, there's a battle royal with the first, second, and third wife because he's left all his money to the starlet and her two chihuahuas. She couldn't love him. She wasn't free to love him. She was so poor and needy, and he was so rich. You see, in order to love someone, you have to have real freedom. To be forced to love someone is, is, is an unsequitur. It's a crime, as a matter of fact. It doesn't happen. So freedom in the Christian life is an absolute essential. In exorcism, in our duty to love one another, in our following of the Lord, freedom is the groundwork of, of, of our moral life. And so the job of the exorcist has a lot to do with getting a person to exercise his or her freedom. So what's this about fasting? Fasting is an exercise in freedom. You know, I could eat that cake, but I'm not going to. I'm going to exercise my freedom to say no. We are slaves to our passions, our appetites, our desires, our prejudices, our preferences— and we think that giving in to those things is freedom. On the contrary, it's slavery. Freedom is when I can say no to the worst taskmaster I have, me. And I can say, I'm not going to do that because I'm free. 
Freedom, fasting is an exercise in freedom. Most people think, well, if I fast, God will feel sorry for me because I'm miserable and give me what I want. That's not how fasting works. Fasting is an exercise in freedom. We Christians are free people in a world of slaves. So when you fast, we must fast as Christians. Uh, but we don't look gloomy. Uh, we don't neglect our appearance. We're not miserable. We are doing something to honor the Father by becoming the free sons and daughters that he wants. So that's, that's what fasting is about. It's about freedom. Now, let's see here. What have I neglected? It's not if you pray. It's not if you fast. It's when you pray and when you fast. Um, also, this, uh, uh, this standing on the street corner, blowing a trumpet. Well, what's that about? Um, it's it's uh, I've heard people say they used to. I've never heard that they actually did that. that it might be a phrase, uh, but in the temple, there were alms, box, uh, alms boxes that were called the trumpets. You would pick what you wanted to put your alms in for your your gift, uh, you know, for wood for the sacrifices, for the maintenance of this. There were, I think, there were bunches of them, and they were in the court of the women, because any Israelite could go into that area, and they were shaped like trumpets. And you put your alms in, and it went down to the trumpet and made a clink. That may be what Jesus is referring to. I don't know. Um, now I want to go to the the parts they've taken out here. Hold on, let me let me. Look here, once again, I have to find, oh, my mouse tried to escape to the screen on my left. I got it back, not to worry. Okay, see, I'm getting better with the mouse. Uh, we started uh, the very first verse of the chapter, so let's go to the first verse. Uh, we, we did all that, let me, okay. When you pray, do not be like hypocrites, but then he goes into the Lord's Prayer, and I don't have the time to do the disquisition on that. Um but this line troubles a lot of people. In praying, do not babble like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Those are tough lines. First of all, well, Catholics, they babble on. They have novenas and litanies and rosaries. That's not what Jesus is talking about. There were actual uh, lists of demon names in the ancient world, the theory being if you mention the name of a bigger demon, it scared a littler demon away. And they would have these lists, and that's not the way it works. Uh, sincere prayer doesn't go according to a formula. Formulas are useful, but I always talk about formulaic prayer is like the bones in a body, and spontaneous prayer and intention is like the muscle. You want a body that has muscle and bone, otherwise you have something that doesn't work. So this does not forbid the rosary. It does not forbid novenas. What it forbids is the belief, the superstitious belief, that the way something is said— uh, makes it efficacious or not efficacious. Now, we don't believe that about the words of the consecration because uh, of the Mass, because the Mass doesn't belong to me as an individual. It's not a private prayer. I, as a priest, must do what the Lord is saying. Then he says, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Why, that? Why pray then? We pray. I've heard people say, well, the Christian prays not so that God will do his will but that he will do God's will. I don't believe that. We pray not so that, not to make God do his will, but to allow God to do his will. God will not work in your life unless you give him permission. That's the amazing thing. We pray that God will do his will. Well, is he going to do it anyway? No, he's not. 
That's why we say, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're asking him to do his will. We're giving God, believe it or not, we're giving God permission. He doesn't need our permission, but he, he condescends to ask for our permission to work in our lives. So when we, your father knows what you need before you ask him, that doesn't mean he's going to give it to you unless you ask him. You know, and, and our prayer is, Lord, do what you want in my life. This is what I would like, but you do what's best for me because you're my father and I trust you. So uh, this idea of he knows what we need before we ask him, God's going to do his will regardless. No, he's not. He will do in our lives what he wants to do if we give him permission. You know, uh, how often have I said to you that the prayer of the, the pagan is give me what I want. The prayer of the believer is, Lord, teach me your ways. Teach me your ways, O Lord. And with that thought, we will end and go to a break, and we will come back with letters and an open phone, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Ooh, banjos. Nothing says Lent like banjos. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for Independent Thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash UDallas. just taunting you cheeseburger i never eat cheeseburgers but i want one now so you know freedom freedom being free of cheeseburgers all right that's it let's move on to letters this is a letter from rachel and recently i was invited to go to a protestant church to listen to the pastor's sermon i've enjoyed the sermons and began talking to others about the sermons how the messages were very thought-provoking. One of my neighbors, who was interested in going back to church, and asked about the pastor's sermon. She thoroughly enjoyed and is going to become a member of the church. Is this a wrong thing I did by not bringing her to my Catholic church? Therefore, giving her a chance. Uh, no, it's, it's I, I, you know, I still continue to run Mass at a Catholic church. You know, in a way, I would uh, be more concerned for myself than for the neighbor. Um you got to understand that Catholicism ministers to the body and the soul and the spirit. Our, 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 our inner heart, our spirit is nourished by prayer. Our souls, the word for Greek in Greek for soul is psyche, our psyches are nourished by the great teaching of the Catholic Church. Remember, we have 2,000 years worth of teaching. And, you know, sometimes you get a sermon that's a dud. Well, read read something um, like Dorothy Day or Mother Teresa or um, uh, some of the more ancient saints. We have this 2,000-year content. But the Catholic Church also ministers to the body. The sacraments, as I said the other day, you know, oil and candles and incense, they touch the body. So... What you need to do is to really steep yourself in the truth of Catholicism because, 
you know, sermons come and sermons go. I mean, there are, are great preachers in in a denomination, and then the denomination gets kind of ossified, and, well, you know, it's not so great anymore. We're part of something that really has a 2,000-year history. So were I you, I would steep myself in those 2,000 years of wonderful teaching and be ready to answer this woman's questions when she says, well, you know, the sermon down there is really great. Why, why are you still a Catholic? Because that minister may go, and his sermons will go with him. But the Word of God endures forever, and we in the Catholic Church— despite the ups and downs we have had, have remained faithful to what we have received. The Catholic Church is the church established by Jesus through the ministry of the apostles. I think that is incontrovertible. I remember my old pastor, Monsignor O'Brien, said, be faithful to the truth that we've received from the apostles Peter and Paul. And that's what I would tell you. And if you really learn that, that heritage uh, you will become very devoted to the truth of the faith, and your neighbor might just take you up on it. So that's my thought on it. Uh, be the best Catholic you can be, and you got to be aware. you got to understand what the faith is about so that when she has questions, you can explain it to her. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, not converts, not church members, but disciples. And I have found that when a person really studies the Scriptures— and the history of Christianity, they end up pretty Catholic. Uh, I would start by reading a book, book by uh, books by Dr. Scott Hahn. Uh, they're excellent stuff. His Rome, Sweet Home, the story of how he came to Catholicism. And I don't think you can get a better commentary on the book of Revelation than Dr. Scott Hahn's book, The Lamb's Supper. Uh, read those. And uh, then you got Mike Aquilina. You want to know church history? Mike Aquilina. Incredible. Uh, his books are, are fantastic. All right. Um, let us move on here. All right. Now, this one is, uh, let's see. Okay. <laughs> this is regarding my explanation of Debodias. I explained that that's a Chicago phrase. That is the dual, uh, the dual second person pejorative. It's pejorative because it's never good. When somebody says, like your boss says, I want to see Debodias in my office. That phrase translates in English to the both of you, Debodias. It's never good. Well, this is a note, a man from Chicago, this is from Patricia. She writes that a man from Chicago, when asked what his personal pronouns were, he responded, my pronouns are D's, D's, and D's. That's, that's perfectly fluent Chicagoan. All right. It's a beautiful language. All right. Moving along. Oh, dear. All right. Father Simon. Uh, thank you for two things. Um, uh, apparently, a, a, a wonderful priest at their parish uh, was listening to the show and mentioned to people that maybe you shouldn't be raising your hands at the Our Father. You know, it's not. You know, it's not forbidden. But on the other hand, it's not the tradition that that the priest stands at the altar in the person of Christ, in persona Christi, we like to say. And the Our Father is the prayer of Christ, and he invites us into it by saying Our. So, in a sense, when the priest prays the Our Father, in the old days, the priest sang the, the, uh, the Paternoster alone, and we joined in at, uh, but deliver us from evil, said Libra no Samalo. The people didn't say the Our Father at Mass because it was the prayer of Christ 
and we were invited into it. Um, now we, of course, all say it, which I, it's fine. You know, it's just a custom. But the custom is not to raise your hands. But at any rate, so um, apparently also mentioned that, um, let's see here, uh, <laughs> wondering uh, uh, if I have any any Italian or Jewish ancestors. I did the, the, the thing, and no, I don't. I'm, I am very, very, I'm about 138% German. However, I do have one out of 300 ancestors that one of those said was an East Siberian nomad. He must have been very lost, which would explain my sense of direction. All right, moving along here. Let's, uh, okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, dear. I just got a note from John. I, 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 I'm, I'm calling my cursor a mouse. <laughs> oh, dear. The, the, the John was wondering if I was actually chasing a real mouse around. It's technically a cursor. But, John, I think cursor sounds worse than mouse. It sounds like it's something I'm cursing with. Just kidding. <laughs> John, God bless you and have a wonderful Lent. Zeigesund. All right. Where were we? All right. Moving along. Now, let's see here. This is from um, uh, uh, Sonia, Sonia Maria. Uh, this is, um, uh, she was just mentioning that she she was touched by a habit of vice can be overcome only by a habit of virtue. And I, I wanted to read this to um, to repeat that. Now, a habit of vice can only become overcome by a habit of virtue. Okay. Drunkenness is a vice, and perhaps you're an alcoholic. What habit fights that? The habit of going regularly to AA and getting a partner and developing that habit. I have known quite a number of alcoholics, and the, the, the beginning is tough. But if they stick with it, you never cease being an addict, but you can rein it in with habits that, that contradict it, that counter it. You know, going to the your, your, your AA meeting regularly or your, your uh, uh, NA meeting regularly. Um, making sure you're in, in contact with your, your partner. And I have known people who, who really have overcome that vice, even when they are addicts and alcoholic, uh, but they've developed a habit. And sometimes, especially at the beginning, they really have to be immersed in that good habit. Anger, what's, what's a good habit for anger? You know, when you feel anger welling up inside, you take the deep breath, and as you let it out, you say, Ah, quietly to yourself, Jesus, I trust in you. It's it's like a sedative. But the point is it's got to become a habit. For all of the seven deadly sins, you can develop a habit. Sloth. Make the habit of reminding yourself that you're going to have to do this anyway. You might as well do it now. Get that thought in your mind and just say, Lord, uh, um, uh, what I do when I just want to lay there and not do what I'm supposed to do, I just say to myself, power through, power through, power through, and I get up and I do it. You know, that, but I forget to say that. You develop kind of a mantra to steal a phrase from another religion, a little phrase that, that reminds you that you can overcome this. Remember what Christ said, that um, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil wants, to, wants you to think the only way you can overcome temptation is by giving in. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Habits, good habits overcome bad habits. So I just, uh, thanks uh, for your kind letter, Sonia. I just wanted to reemphasize that, especially as we enter into Lent, because sometimes we get so discouraged by uh, our weakness and our sinfulness, uh, but we shouldn't be. We should realize that God has given us a way out 
And uh, if we take him up on the deal, he will bless us. All right, let's see here. Um, at Mass, I typically sit in the middle of the back of the church, so not a great view of the altar. Sick at home last Sunday. I watched the 4 p.m. Mass on EWTN. Noticed two chalices on the altar, one with wine and one with, with one larger than normal one with a larger-than-normal water? The bread, pre-consecration, was taken out of the chalice and placed on a paten. Priest said the words of consecration and bells were rung. My question, after the priest said the words of consecration and a camera trained elsewhere, a larger chalice was placed on the altar along with the other two. Chalices visibly filled with smaller wafers. Oh, not water. It was wafers. I'm sorry, I misread. Getting old, my eyes aren't what they used to be. It was visibly filled with smaller wafers. This chalice, uh, with its contents, was either closed in the tabernacle or on a, on a shelf behind during the ritual of consecration. Can wafers slash hosts really be consecrated to become body, blood, etc. of Jesus when the priest has his back to them? Of course they can. Uh, the, the, the important thing is the intention. Uh, the host should be in in proximity, but that's not what's going on. There isn't a chalice in which hosts are placed. That covered chalice, it's really called a ciborium, and that means a bread container in Latin. Chibus is a word for bread or any really any kind of edible. It's sort of ancient Roman Tupperware, I suppose. But the ciborium is usually a covered vessel, and it was taken from the tabernacle. And the thing I want to emphasize here is that when, when the communion wafers are consecrated. When the Holy Spirit has been called down on them and the intention is to allow the Holy Spirit to, to ask the Holy Spirit to change those into the flesh and blood of Christ. And the words that are prescribed in Scripture and by the church are said, that does not represent the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. It becomes the whole Christ, as Dr. Hahn prefers to call it, the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And it does not cease to be the whole Christ when it is stored in the tabernacle. A lot of people think that the, 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 the consecrated communion hosts are the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ only during the Mass. That's not true. They don't cease to become the body, blood, soul, and divinity, the whole Christ, even when stored in the tabernacle. So... It is conceivable that a priest, knowing that uh, what we do uh, when we're ordained is we make an intention to offer the Mass for the person who has requested that, and, and especially those who have made a donation. Uh, it's ad intention dantis, for the intention of the one who gives. So if the Mass, if someone reads an intention wrong and get all upset because this was being uh, uh, offered for my Aunt Brunhilda? No, it was offered for your Aunt Brunhilda. The Lord knows that you had reserved the intention of that Mass. Also, we make the intention to consecrate anything that is on the corporal. That word means the cloth for the body. And sometimes you get a very large corporal, you have a big conference, and I've actually seen this, that, that there are hosts on a table other than the altar, and those are consecrated. I don't like that, but, you know... I think get a bigger table to use as an altar. Um, but uh, they are consecrated because of the knowledge and intention of the celebrant of the Mass. So just understand that, that the hosts, once consecrated, don't cease to be consecrated, and the hosts reserved in the tabernacle in a ciborium are truly the whole Christ. 
And that's why we make visits to the Blessed Sacrament. That's why we have Eucharistic adoration, because we believe that that little round thing that looks to all the world like bread is really Christ, the Son of God. So I hope that answers your question, Alice. I think we can probably go to a break. We're going to come back with a word of the day. And the phones are open at 888-914-9149. Battling Addictions? Our sponsor, St. Gregory Recovery Center, can help you or a loved one live a substance-free life. Information at RelevantRadio.com slash Gregory. That's RelevantRadio.com slash Gregory. Father Simon says... You don't like what? Whatever it is, I don't like it. Well, don't let's break up an old friendship over a thing like that. On Relevant Radio. It's kind of lovely. It's a little schmaltzy. But hey, schmaltz, it has its place. All right. Let's go to the word of the day. Okay. Um, the word of the day is hypocrite. It's mentioned prominently, and I talk about this a lot. It's a topic I'm very familiar with, believe me. The word hypocrite is a Greek word, surprise, surprise, and it means play actor. When I say, if I were to say, you're a hypocrite, that would mean you are a mean, lying, evil, nasty, you know, dishonest. If I was in ancient Athens and said hypocrite, I would say, oh, you know, hypocrite. Oh, who's your favorite hypocrite? It means play actor. That's all it meant. Oh, he's a wonderful hypocrite. It, 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 my favorite hypocrite is in a show tonight. I'm going down to the Parthenon to see it. There's actually a, a theater just down the hill from the Parthenon. So... That's what the word meant. It was a very common word, and it was not uh, it was not pejorative. You see, in the ancient world, the I've shared this before, and we'll share it now. They wore masks that represented the character they were portraying, and in the mask was a megaphone uh, that amplified their voices, so you could hear up in the cheap seats of the theater. So a hypocrite. Was the, the word literally means someone who answers under the mask. That's, that's a hypocrite. Now, I am a hypocrite. <laughs> I, I often play act. You do too. You know, uh, the, uh, uh, the, I heard a wonderful joke. It's a shame that Catholics don't... Uh, you know, recognize uh, Protestants and a shame that uh, uh, Muslims don't recognize Jews and a shame that two uh, hardcore evangelicals don't recognize each other in a liquor store. I don't get it. I <laughs> well, Homer, don't get it. you don't get any of them. But the the I have uh, been buying adult beverages uh, for gatherings of friends, and uh, it's kind of funny when I was a pastor and people knew me, I would look in my grocery cart to see what was in there to make sure that, that anything that people might question was buried under. That's hypocrisy. That's play acting. I, I'm playing the role of the holy pastor, and, well, there's nothing wrong with the moderate consumption of adult beverages if you're not an alcoholic. Catholics rock! They do. But uh, there's nothing wrong with it. 
but I want people to think well of me. That's hypocrisy. I mentioned a false humility earlier. That's hypocrisy, trying to be excessively humble, trying to look humble. Oh, I never talk about my religious life. I never talk about my spiritual life. That would be boasting. Mm, It wouldn't be as much of a boast as you think. Trust me. Hypocrisy is play acting to hide who you really are. And the most, the best actors, the best hypocrites in the Greek sense of the word, are the ones who convince themselves of the role. They get into the into the role. Uh, they become Blanche Dubois from a street call streetcar called Desire. Uh, you become the person, and pretty soon you don't realize that you're play acting. You've convinced the only audience you really convince, which is you. Um, you're never going to convince God. He can see right past the mask. So hypocrisy, you know, the, the holiest person at the prayer meeting is clearly the one with the biggest Bible, that kind of thing. Don't be excessively humble. That's hypocrisy. Don't be excessively, uh, uh, um, you know, don't go around looking holy uh, when um, you think someone's watching. Remember, your religion is what you do when no one but God is watching. All right, that's it. Let's go to uh, phones. Why don't you ask me a little easy question? Will you answer it? A tiny one. Well, I don't know what that was about. Georgia from Albuquerque, New Mexico. What can I do for you? Happy Ash Wednesday, Father Simon. I also want to say that you are my very favorite uh, relevant radio show host. Oh, bless you. you got to get out more. So much go on. <laughs> during your Bible study hour. Well, thank you. Um, I do have a question. In church today, church was very, very full. Yes. Um, with parishioners and new faces. Mm-hmm. My question is, can non-Catholics receive ashes today? Of course they can. There's nothing particularly uh, uh, unique to Catholics about ashes. And they, of course they can. It's not communion. It's not taking a pledge. Remember, this is a kind of medieval practice. And it's not it doesn't go back to the early church. They would use ashes. Uh, Jews would often use ashes as a sign of repentance. They would drop ashes on their head. We probably get it from them, but it was formalized in the Middle Ages, and I believe that's when it goes back to. And it isn't communion. It isn't uh, absolution. For instance, people say, can a can a, a non-Catholic go to confession? Of course they can. They can't get absolution, though. Um, because that's not part of the covenant they've made. So, yes, they can receive ashes. Did that answer your question, Georgia? Yes, thank you, Father. Well, God bless you. Thank you. God bless you, too. Thank you. Let's go, let's go to Ursula from Austin. Yeah, Ursula. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. I'm a retired German teacher. Ach, du lieber. Right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I, I live in von, uh, yeah. Deutsch. Ach, I need your help. My Deutsch is furchtbar. I'm Deutsch verderber. Anyway, I told Ursula I slaughter German. Well, let's let's uns auf English machen. Let's let's do it in English. <laughs> Where do you come from in Germany? Where else comes to? Wo in Deutschland? Von Oberhausen im Ruhrgebiet. Oh, ja, ja, ja. Meine Vorfahren kommen aus uh, Oberhessen. So, ja, is... und ich bin unter Bomben geboren worden. 1942. Oh. Heavy bombing. Oh, my gosh. Let's go to English. We can have so much fun in German. I love the German language. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Yeah, well, what yeah can I do I, too. What... That's why I'm teaching it. Yeah. That's but... why I'm still teaching it. <laughs> well, uh, I wish I lived closer. Well, what can I do yeah. for you, Ursula? Any, anyway, 
I I have uh, now as a retired teacher, I have I have private students, adult mm-hmm. students who come yeah. to my house. Um, four of them already for five years. Mm-hmm. Now, recently, a director of a playhouse came and wanted to improve it. He's pretty good. But anyway, he shocked me uh, with telling me about his, my man. Uh. Of course, then I asked him, you are homosexual? He said, yes. I mean, I'm very friendly to him. Mm-hmm. But the language, the language shocked, shocks me so much yeah. because my man is referred, uh, uh, I can say to my husband, that yeah, is my man. Yeah, that's but, how you say husband. But, uh, homosexual, he is a man himself, yes. a beautiful man. How can he, language-wise, I, I, I don't know if I challenge him with, with the language, if I offend him, I don't want to be a Christian. I want. To, I mean, I want to be yeah. a Christian way, and I don't know whether I can say something as a Catholic Christian, I believe uh, so and so. If that's if that would be repulsive to him and say, "Oh, these Christians, these are, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean." Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I think that we we need to look at what Saint Peter said in his first letter, the third chapter. He says, "In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you." to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, you treat him with respect because he is made in the image and likeness of God. You treat him with respect and with the appropriate, uh, you know, remember the definition of St. Thomas Aquinas of love, as I always say, is to will the good of another. And if you say something in a way he can't hear it, it does him no good. But if he gets to know you and trust you and then realizes you're a Catholic and asks you the question, you know, is it a problem that I'm a homosexual? What I would say, it's not a problem for me, but maybe it's a problem for you, you know, that that uh, that um, I really do believe that, that God loves you and that God made you who you, a, a man. And, and uh, your experiences may have changed your, your, your perspective, but I just want you to know God loves you and... and uh, Ask God about this. You want to lead him to Christ. You don't want to to, to lead him to to. Uh, uh, you can't lead him to a, a moral code until he knows Christ. So remember when when the Bible when Jesus said uh, that he would make us figure fishers of men. He didn't tell us that we were supposed to be the bait. <laughs> we're the worm on the hook. So if he comes to to love you and 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 respect you. Ultimately, he's going to have to love and respect the Christ whom you love, and you may get the opportunity to speak. So you never want to speak in a way he can't hear. So you go slowly, and if he asks you, mm-hmm. say, "Do you really mm-hmm. want to?" Just say, "Do you really want to know what I think?" So yeah, I really do. And and well, this is what I think that that this is not healthy, and and um, but I want you to know that God loves you and has a way for you to to come to full health. Does that does that explain a little bit? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so in other words, I should tolerate and say a silent prayer whenever he speaks of his friend as my man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he says it pretty proud, proudly. Yeah. Well, it gives me a sting, but inside, then I, I should be quiet and be stay friendly as if I didn't hear it. As if. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know the is reason. You the reason that he's doing that is because he doesn't believe it's right. Way down deep. 
he wouldn't have to constantly talk about it. You know, a, a, a yeah, heterosexual yeah. person does not say, oh, and I have a woman for a wife. You know, he doesn't yeah. say that. It's just natural. He yeah, is feeling yeah, the sting yeah. of his own sin. And so when he says that, I think your reaction shouldn't be any kind of anger, but real okay. pity for him. Real pity for him. The reason he's yeah. talking so much about it is okay. down deep, he knows it's wrong. So, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's yeah. what I would suggest. Uh, but you Thank react you. to everyone Thank with love, love and honor because yeah. everyone is loved by God and made in his image. So, so it's was very angenehm, very angenehm, and I, I freue mich, dass uh, dass du uh, hörst uh, mein mein Rundschau. Gott segne, yeah. okay. God bless yeah, you. Yeah, Oh, Thank vielen you. Dank, vielen Dank. Yeah. Keep praying Wunderbar. for me. Yeah. All right, auf Wiedersehen. Yeah. Mach's gut. Yeah, auf Wiedersehen. Well, now that everybody's heard a little German, I my German is my German is is Aunt Lisa, what's for dinner? Oh, good, I love pot roast. So uh, it sounds good, but it's not. Adam, let's go to Adam. Are you with us, Adam? What can I do for you? Uh, Duncan Shine, Father Simon. <laughs> Duncan Shine, <laughs> Okay. Uh, thank you very much for taking my call, and praise be to Jesus Christ now and how great the sacraments Amen. are. And- Amen. And uh, I just want to say, I hope you don't mind, I just say uh, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon said it popped in my head when you were talking about the word of the day. And uh, he says that uh, the beginning of wisdom is uh, fear Fear of God. Fear of the Lord, yes, uh, yes. It's not the end of wisdom. Love is, but it is the beginning. But go on. Absolutely. And um, so my question is, so priests and nuns, they, uh, you know, they can be like a hermit, you know, mm-hmm. or they go out to these monasteries, places mm-hmm. away from the cities, you know, to pray mm-hmm. and um, uh, and uh, things like that. And I was wondering if there's a place or options for laymen to uh, go and pray and uh, either for low cost or any cost at all, please. You know, I, I don't know about cost. What I would do is I would uh, um, say that again. I what? I was just saying, there's a lot of retreat centers in the Twin Cities. There are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of retreat proposing. centers in the Twin City. But what, what I would do if were I you is I would find a good monastery that is near you, uh, if possible, and uh, go there for retreats as often as possible. And, um, you know, again, uh, while cost, I'm not sure. But, um, for instance, I know a, a monastery in Oklahoma where people have actually moved near the monastery to be to live a more a more um, retired life. And that might be the way you want to go. Find a monastery uh, with which you're comfortable and where you sense the Lord is calling you, and you might just want to move close to it if, if that's possible. Um, uh, I would start with looking for a good monastery. You're in the Twin Cities. I don't know any monasteries in that area. I do know there's a Trappist monastery in Dubuque, which is quite a ways. That's four hours from the Twin Cities, but... But there are a number of wonderful monasteries. There's a, a wonderful uh, Greek Catholic monastery in St. Nazianzen, really wonderful monastery. Um, so there are monasteries. So I would look for monasteries around you and find one where you sense the Lord is calling you. So that's how I would start that process. Does that answer your question a little bit? Absolutely. Thank you very well, God much bless you. for that information. God bless you. Yeah. Praise when, God for the, your radio station. Well, thank you. It's, yeah, uh, that's, really uh, it is, it's a blessing to me, too. God bless you, Adam. Let's go to Delia. Delia, are you with us in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Thank you, Father, for having me. 
Um, I've got a question. How do you feel about females or girls being ultra servers? In the Novus Ordo, uh, the the current uh, uh, ordinary form of the Mass, I am opposed to children being altar servers. Let everyone have that sink in. Yes, the purpose of altar boys was to give a kid the idea that he might want to uh, pursue um, being ordained for the altar. That was the idea of altar boys. That canoe is over the waterfall. So we still have the custom of having altar children. And when I was a pastor at St. Lambert's, I discouraged altar children. We had servers who were adults, men and women, not a problem, and they would dress we would they would dress in those graduation gowns with a, a cowl in a liturgical color and uh uh, all of the ministers who, whether they read or served or whatever their liturgical function was, they dressed the same. Because in the early church, the lectors and the, and, and the, the, the acolytes and all that were all adults. This idea of altar children had to do with instilling the idea of a vocation, and that's over. So what do I think of altar girls? I don't want altar boys or altar girls. I don't want altar children. I want people who are confirmed and exercising a ministry in the church because they are convinced adults. Oh, that's terrible. Children should be able to serve. Well, depends. Some people are mature early. Some people never grow up. But speaking of grown-ups, Drew is coming on. He's definitely a grown-up.